Chapter Ten of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter Ten: Hercules and Omphale. Late in the afternoon of that day upon which Dyson Maddox had visited Coolrobin, Mr. Longleat found himself crossing the Leichardt in the ferry-boat that plied between the north side and Emu Point. As he had sat in the club after his office work was over, Mr. Valancy had entered and had started a game of whist at five shilling points the man was flushed and unsteady he had called for brandy and soda-water had drunk freely and had brought into the room an atmosphere of bickering and braggadocio peculiarly obnoxious to the premier he had made several gibing political allusions and had so far succeeded in ruffling mr longleat's temper that the latter had left the club he walked towards the ferry and took his seat in the boat before he had quite decided whether he would call on mrs valancy or not inclination carried the day before he had reached the opposite side his impulse had settled into resolve it was not mr longleat's custom to make afternoon calls and mrs valancy's neighbours were considerably surprised to see the huge white-clad figure enter the wicket-gate and tap gently at the half-closed venetian shutters of the drawing-room the premier always wore white linen in summer spotless as though it had just left the hands of the laundress he usually carried himself erect with a visible swelling of his chest and elevation of his head as though he had indeed the state secrets of an important colony in his keeping there was just a spice of ostentation in his bearing of self-assertion in his walk to-day his appearance was less pompous he stepped more quickly he looked a trifle sheepish without having actually analysed the nature of his attraction towards mrs valancy he had honestly struggled against the infatuation that since the coach journey had been gradually intensifying and felt himself guilty of a moral lapse in voluntarily placing himself under its influence in the same manner that the drunkard supremely conscious of sober intent resists for a time the fatal glass and at last yields trusting to the shreds of self-control left him to bind him against committal mrs valancy sitting alone in her drawing-room observed the premier's approach and herself admitted him as soon as he saw her face longleat felt certain that she had been weeping to-day she was clad in white and wore a yellow rose in the front of her dress her voice was subdued and melancholy she took mr longleat's rough hand with her soft ringed fingers and led him to a seat of cushioned gilt wicker-work ill-suited enough to the premier's substantial form the room was full of dainty knick-knacks small tables japanese screens and cabinets and expensive ornaments such as might readily form part of a collection of keepsakes a rich yet faint odour exhaling from a bowl of creamy magnolias pervaded the apartment the green jalousies were partially drawn and the room was dim and cool 
"'You have remembered me,' said Mrs. Valancy, in joyful tones. "'Good things sometimes come when they are sorely needed. "'A visit from you is one of them. "'I'm not very well today. "'A headache. "'That is always a woman's excuse when she is cross or unhappy.' i'm afraid that something is troubling you said mr longleat destitute of the fine tact which observes but does not remark and if there were she replied in a tone more pathetic than ungracious who would care she walked to the window lifted the jealousy looked out plucked a rose with which she toyed and returned seating herself on a low chair close to her visitor she leaned her chin upon her hand and regarded him with a queer inscrutable gleam shining in her dark eyes you care she said presently perhaps a little mr longleat wiped his face with a silk pocket handkerchief his heart throbbed with pity and with a generosity which he dared not proffer tell me what's the matter he said she shook her head in a deprecatory manner but still led him on i can't bear to see it continued mr longleat hurriedly taking her hand in his it it goes again me somehow a woman like you ought to be kept from fretting and worry you're one of the prettiest creatures god ever made it's only right that you should be wrapped round with riches to hinder the hard things of life from knocking again you and hurting you tell me is it is it money she gave a little nod then wrenched her hand away it isn't all she said not all or half and what is the use of telling you it won't make you think any the better of me or like me any the more i dare say that you'll despise me in your heart for speaking about my troubles to a stranger like you don't call me a stranger said longleat earnestly i'm a plain-spoken man and i go at a thing straight without beating about the bush look here mrs valancy if you'll let me call myself your friend you'll find that with me the word means a good deal i'm proud to think that you've honoured me so far with your confidence you needn't be afraid of speaking out it-it grieves me to see you unhappy yes i am sure of that said she gazing earnestly into his face if i had not thought so should i have talked to you as frankly as i have done all along your heart is so large so noble that you can find room in it even for me you can feel for my troubles almost as you would feel for those of your daughter mr longleat reddened but she maintained an innocent composure isn't it so it comforts me to think that someone cares for me a little you have heard about me about my husband she went on with her eyes downcast upon the matting you know the sort of people we are or rather the sort of people that we are taken to be you can guess the kind of life i lead no you cannot guess half or a quarter of its wretchedness and you would despise me if i told you you know that we are deeply in debt that he gambles drinks that he is often cruel to me the burden of all our misery falls on my shoulders that was what i meant when i said that i could be happy if he were sent away out of temptation if he could be sent to a place ever so far north he would go 
He wants money, and I should be left here. He would not be so cruel as to make me accompany him. He knows that a hot climate is almost fatal to me. I should be justified in refusing, and then I should be free. Oh, think what that would be to me. I should be spared harassing scenes. Daily worry, I should have peace. Yes, said Longleat slowly and pausing between his words, if, if there were such a place that he could be sent to. There is, she whispered, looking at him eagerly, there is Gundaroo. Longleat blenched. He shifted uneasily in his chair and sat silent, his eyes upon the ground. She went on in calmer, silvery tones. Don't think that I have asked for it. I have no right. The boon would be too great, and you may only despise me. It seems terrible to wish one's husband to go away. I should not dare to let him know it. I am a hypocrite. I am selfish and heartless, but I long, oh, I long for rest. Truth is harder to face than the worst which one's imagination can picture. I am a cowardly woman. I quail before rough usage. I like tender care and soft words and delicate clothes, and of all these my life is barren. I never loved my husband. Why should I not say so to you? And he knows it. I was compelled to marry him, and now I am paying the penalty of my weakness and folly. You must not blame yourself, said Mr. Longleat. You've been sinned against and cruelly used. I left the club just now because your husband came in and I could not sit comfortably in the same room with him. If I feel like that, what must it be to you? It's a sin that a girl's married misery should be borne only by herself and then that it should be thought a shame for her to speak. How is it possible for an innocent, trusting creature to tell a bad man from a good one? Her father should look after that. Do you think, he added, and he trembled as he spoke, that I could rest easy in my grave if I had knowingly let my girl married to her wretchedness? God forgive me all sins, but never that one, if I'm like to commit it. It mightn't be your fault altogether, said Mrs. Valancy. Your daughter might be willful, you don't know. I was willful always. It wasn't entirely because of my father and mother. I thought as they did that I should be rich and live at ease. You see, I don't wish you to think me better than I am. And I am punished. Heaven knows that I am poor enough now. What's money, after all, said Longleat, what's the good of it but to make the people one loves happy? I've got plenty. That is the light in which I look at it, and that is what I meant when I said that there might be ways of helping you, if you would accept a loan from me to relieve you from your difficulties and put you straight, it'd be nothing to me. We shall never have any money. It would be impossible for us to repay you. But friends, you said that we were friends, stammered Mr. Longleat, and there needn't be any question of that sort. It's what I've done scores of times for pals on the road, and you, she laughed softly. Friendship does not often imply a partnership in purse. No, no, don't talk of a loan. I understand you. You have a generous heart. Another woman might have been offended. I am not, but it wouldn't do.
You can't serve me in that way. Believe me that I am most grateful for your sympathy. It warms and comforts me. Now let us drop the subject of my troubles. I have said too much. I forbid you to mention them again. Tell me about yourself, about your daughter. I am jealous of her. I envy her. Why? asked Mr. Longleat in surprise. For the reason that we are both women. Has she not everything that I lack? Beauty? Ah, you need not shake your head. If I was pretty once, I know that I am prematurely old and faded now. Love, admiration, wealth, and above all, has she not you, a father who adores her? you're right there said mr longleat speaking with rough earnestness i worship the clothes she wears the ground she treads that's about it i only value what i am and what i've got according by what i am able to do for her and yet it's a queer thing i don't mind saying it to you but i could not say it to any one else least of all to her something in my throat had stopped me women aren't the same for all that it's true i love her as i love my life i've told myself when i've done a good day's work it's to make a lady of honey she's not like her father i've meant that she should grow up different there's sorts and sorts i'm one sort and i've educated her to be another i've prepared myself for it but lord for all that it's hard i couldn't talk out to her as i'm talking to you now no said mrs valancy in a tone half sympathetic half interrogative it's true i'm not one to growl over the crop i've sown but it's a trifle hard when a man can't reap his own harvest you mean said mrs valancy that your daughter will marry i'm prepared for that said longleat if she marries to my mind i'll not complain at losing her all i ask is that i may be able to cotton with the man she set her heart on i'm pretty quick at seeing the wrong side of human nature i know a pair of honest eyes when they look into mine and her husband must be an australian she owes it to the country that has given her her money and that has made a man of her father her marriage wasn't what i meant there's a kind of wall between us that seems to grow thicker as she grows older and we can't either of us climb it she's a lady with ladies ways i'm nothing to her but a rough beggar that has knocked again the world and doesn't understand her she's standoffish and i'm huffed and so it goes on and for all my love we go farther apart you see i'm telling you my troubles now he sat silent for several moments with a harassed look upon his face she moved a little closer to him and laid her hand upon his it's different with you he said you seem to be my friend somehow from the first i ain't shy at speaking to you as i said before what is money between friends or if you would let me arrange matters with your husband he does not like me but i do not think that he would make any difficulty about accepting a loan from me no no that would be impossible she said we could never repay you she repeated you hurt me said longleat when you talk about repayment it is as though your pride wouldn't let you accept anything from a rough fellow like me that's how i take it indeed you do me injustice cried mrs valancy warmly i thank you with my whole heart for your noble offer let me accept your friendship your sympathy which are sweet indeed to me but let the other matter rest 
she rose and moved to the window under pretext of raising the blind but in reality to avoid following up the turn which the conversation had taken in truth she was anxious that he should not at that moment divine how far upon some future occasion she might be ready to avail herself of his generosity mrs valancy walked out to the veranda and then returned my husband will soon be coming back she said i had better go said longleat feeling that he was dismissed i shall see you at the opening of parliament he added still lingering no i shall not be there he pressed her for the motive of her absence since you will have it said she a woman's reason why do women go to raree shows to wear new gowns i have none therefore i shall stay at home is it really so asked longleat looking incredulously at her slim white-robed figure yes truly i owe madame sophie already more than i can pay her i may tell you this since i have refused to borrow your money now good-bye longleat shook hands with mrs valancy and departed some days later a covered box was brought over from the north side and left at the emu point cottage accompanied by a note in which madame sophie expressed her willingness to execute any further orders with which mrs valancy might favour her upon opening the box constance found that the costume which she had coveted was placed at her disposal when residing at leichardt's town without his daughter it was not mr longleat's habit to dine at the bunyas he was a man to whom masculine society afforded greater pleasure than any other and though he neither drank nor smoked making indeed a merit of the abstinence which he affirmed had contributed largely towards his success in life the roistering conversation of the smoking-room and the political element which pervaded the club was better suited to his taste than the more refined atmosphere of drawing-rooms but upon the evening of his visit to mrs valancy he departed from his usual rule and oppressed by an unaccountable sense of blankness he ate his dinner at home in musing solitude then retired to his study where he surrounded but did not occupy himself with letters and books never had his home appeared more devoid of companionship never had the lack of sympathy in his life forced itself more strongly upon him he would have given much to hear the sound of janey's prattle to be conscious of honoria's sweet if somewhat disdainful presence the current of his daily interests and ambitions seemed to have been suddenly checked and he felt himself to be stranded helplessly upon an unknown shore he was vainly trying to concentrate his attention upon some official papers when the door was opened and the entrance of dyson maddox furnished an opportune stimulant to his jaded energies the premier greeted him warmly it was evident that the young man was a favourite i am afraid that i am very late said dyson the kooya coach was behindhand this evening i looked into the club expecting to find you there i was obliged to go over some of morrison's work and could do it better here but i am not in the humour for poring over papers this evening you got my letter of course and you have come down about the land's appointment yes replied dyson i have been turning the matter over in my mind ever since i heard from you i dare say you will wonder that i should have given it a thought except to feel gratified at the honour you have done me 
I am most sensible of that, but the fact is there were both public and private reasons. Are you sure that I am the man for the place? Not a doubt of it, said the Premier. I have always had my eye upon you as a likely member of the Cabinet. The screw is not a primary object with you. We want independent men. Lycombe and Brown were thought of, but they are free lances, and we are at odds upon the ab abolition bill. It might have been a wise precaution to nail one of them just at this turn of affairs, but there would have been a split later. The other ministers think with me. You are bound to stand and fall by our party, and you are fitted in every way for the office of lands. I hope that you have made up your mind to accept. Yes, I have done so. I have put aside all private feeling in the matter. I came down by Kulrabin today and saw your daughter. You know what my hopes were, and you were good enough to encourage them. It is only fair to tell you that they are now at an end. What? exclaimed Mr. Longleat, looking up with an expression of concern. Honoria has refused you. You don't mean to say so. I could have sworn that she was fond of you. She is a flirt, is Honey, and likes to be admired, but I had my reasons for believing that you were the man she had set her heart on. This is a blow to me, Dyson. I don't understand women. I own that I can't make out my daughter. Perhaps I ought to say that some men might not have considered her refusal hopeless. She told me that she could not love me, that she required excitement, passion, neither of which she could find in me, that she wished to see more of the world, and half suggested that I should give her six months in which to make up her mind. I think she has some regard for me, but that is not the fashion in which I must be loved. If she has dreams of this kind, it is better that she should seek their fulfillment. My wife must not come to me half-hearted. Pooh, pooh, said the Premier, visibly relieved. You cannot expect such a prize as Honoria to drop like a ripe cherry into your mouth. Women won't answer at once to the bit. They must be coaxed and humoured. You mustn't give up so quickly. I thought you had more pluck. It is at an end, said Dyson grimly. I shall never try again unless your daughter's mode of thought changes entirely. She is restless and dissatisfied. She wishes to see life. Take her to England, Mr. Longley. Let her have her fill. Throw her into intercourse with men of the upper classes, and give her an opportunity of choosing a husband to her taste. If she returns unmarried, it will be time enough for me to resume my suit. Bye, interrupted Mr. Longleat fiercely. I have seen enough of Englishmen and of their doings. My daughter shall never marry a cursed aristocrat. She is the fruit of a free country, and in it her lot shall be cast. If she will have it so, but she has a will of her own, said Dyson. You have cultivated her intellect and perceptions. You have made her what she is. It is out of your power to control her likes and antipathies. Well, the subject is not a pleasant one for me. As far as I am concerned, let it drop. Now I want to show her that I am brave enough to live in her world without flinching from the pain of association with her interest and pursuits. I gratefully accept the appointment. It gives me an opportunity for which I have wished. 
I'll make the necessary arrangements with Cathcart and take up my abode in Leichardt's Town for the winter. Then followed a political discussion which lasted long into the night and through which it is not necessary to carry the reader. End of chapter 10